Well, praise God for those testimonies to God's goodness, God's grace. And let me just say, this is also a very rich time evangelistically. And what I mean by that is, this is, one of, this is a special moment. If you, if you hear these testimonies, and these seem so foreign to you, it, it, you hear these and you think, I, I, don't, I don't know that life. I, I, that's not been my experience. This is a time to recognize that, that Christ is calling to us to trust him, to look to him as these two young ladies have. And what a wonderful opportunity you have today as you hear the gospel, the, the gospel being proclaimed as it has been worked into the lives of individual people to turn and follow this Jesus, to turn and trust in this Christ, to turn away from your sin. So thank you, Sarah and Eva, for that. I look forward to baptizing you at the end of our service. It is fitting today, as we will be doing these baptisms later, that we come to Genesis 26, verses 1 to 11. Just providential, really, in in many ways, that this is the passage. It's not a genealogy today, so that uh, maybe would be a little less fitting, perhaps, but This passage is particularly fitting, and why do I say that? Genesis 26, 1 to 11. Well, to put it simply, this passage helps us to better understand the nature or the essence of the Christian life. This is a a really rich passage for understanding what it means to be a Christian. And I would even say beyond what it means to be a Christian by definition, but also what it looks like in lived out experience to be a Christian. So today, we get a visual of Christian identity through baptism. And that's, by the way, that's what baptism is. It's a visual of Christian identity. At the heart of the Christian gospel, at the heart of the Christian life, is this notion of being united with Christ. Union with Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Every other idea that we would associate with our salvation, whether it's justification or adoption or sanctification or any of these other ideas, they all really fall underneath the banner of union with Christ. And baptism expresses that union with Christ as we are identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So we are buried with Christ. We die with Christ. We are buried with Christ and we are raised with Christ up out of the water to newness of life. And of course, that being raised up out of the water to newness of life points us forward to the resurrection of the body at the return of Christ. Paul identifies this with baptism in Romans 6. And so we get today this visual of Christian identity. And on top of that, at the same time, we get to see what the Christian life is like through the patriarch Isaac. We know from the last couple of weeks that the spotlight for the remainder of Genesis is really on Jacob. Jacob is going to be the focus of the remainder of the book. So the the next 24 chapters, 25 chapters, we will be looking at Jacob, the life of Jacob as it is expressed through his, lived out through his sons and and even in his own journey. Jacob is Abraham's grandson. But today, the focus shifts back to consider the life of Isaac, Abraham's son. So Jacob becomes the new focus. But in this chapter, Isaac gets the attention. And so the title for the sermon today is Like Father, Like Son. Genesis 26 is like a replay. It's fascinating when you read through this chapter. It is like a replay. The life of Abraham is being replayed in the life of his son Isaac. And if you, if you look throughout the whole chapter from the beginning to the end, you're seeing, in a sense, all the, the outworking of, of the many chapters we, where we looked at Abraham. You're seeing that in a nutshell being relived in Isaac's experience. Specifically, the covenant relationship between God and Abraham, as well as the confirmations and results of that relationship, are being replayed in the life of his son. And today we're just going to look at the first 11 verses, which really set up the rest of the chapter. So, chapter 26, verses 1 to 11. If you would go ahead and stand, and we will read God's word at this time. 
This is God's word, perfect and profitable for his people. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord's blessing and that God would prepare our hearts to witness and for Eva and Sarah to, uh, to go through baptism. Father, we are so grateful for your precious word. And we come together again today humbly to hear it, to see you displayed in it, to be made wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, to learn the life that you have called us to, to be instructed in the nature of covenant living, living in relationship to you, our God, our Father, our King, Lord, we do not consider this a small thing to be gathered together as a local church to worship you. And even more, Father, to be gathered together to witness two individuals who have been united with Christ by faith. Father, we are so grateful for salvation. And what a wonderful reminder in the name Yeshua, Jesus, that he is the Savior the Lord's salvation, the Lord saves. He is our Savior. And Father, we thank you for this visual reminder that we will get later of how we have been united to Christ. And we know that Christ has been raised. And we know that Christ has passed through the heavens. And he is seated at your right hand. And we know that he is the glorious King who will reign over all things, who reigns now and will reign forever. And to think that we have been raised with Christ, seated with Christ, that we will reign together with Christ. Lord, it is unfathomable. We praise you for these things. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface of these, of these glorious, beautiful truths. And, and God, if we... If we did, we would rejoice in you in ways that would be transformative in every area of our lives. We would hate sin. We would cling to you in faith. So God, remind us of this gospel. Remind us, each of us, this morning as we see it displayed. Reassure us, Father, those of us who belong to you and those of us who do not belong to you. Would you convict of sin? Would you draw them to yourself? Father, we pray that you would be merciful to any among us this morning who has not been united to this Jesus Christ. 
We praise you for your word, and now we sit under it. Father, would you teach us, teach us of who you are, teach us your ways, that we might be wise in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, the title for the sermon this morning, Like Father, Like Son, that is what we have in these 11 verses, and we see this in these verses in three Ways And you'll see this outline on your bulletin. You can go there and look. We see this worked out like father, like son, worked out in the life of Isaac. Or we could say the life of Abraham worked out in the life of Isaac in these three ways. First, in his friendship. Second, in his faith. And finally, in his frailty. And so let's look first at in his friendship. We see that the son is like the father in his Friendship. Look again at verses 1 to 4. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. When we read these verses, the word that comes to my mind is echo. It's an echo. This sounds almost exactly like what we've heard before. As I said a moment ago, it is a replay or a repeat of God's language to Isaac's father, to Abraham. Going all the way back to chapter 12. These promises come at the beginning of the Abraham story. We see Abraham introduced at the end of chapter 11. After those first 11 chapters of primeval history explaining the The creation, the fall, and the flood, and then we have the Tower of Babel, and then out of all of that, we see this little glimmer of hope in this man, Abram. And then in chapter 12, we get God coming to Abram. And throughout those chapters, going all the way up to where we're at now, we heard this kind of language in his life. And as we've discussed before, one of the ways Abraham is referred to throughout Scripture is as a friend of God, that language of, of friendship. We see this in Isaiah 41.8. He's described as a friend of God. Second Chronicles 27, James 2.23, Abraham, the friend of God. And here Isaac is being presented as having that same kind of relationship with God that his father did. Now he, Isaac, will be a friend of God, one who is in covenant relationship with him. And we'll go back and consider in a moment the famine and Isaac's move to Gerar. But for now, here's what I want you to see. This is the main thing at this point that we need to see. This covenant relationship with God, this friendship with God involves being the recipient of three priceless treasures. We saw these in the life of Abraham and we see these here just in the space of these four verses. We see these Three priceless treasures that belong to those who are the recipients of friendship with God. And here they are. They just come right out of the text. God's revelation, God's presence, and God's promises. That is what Abraham had. That is now what Isaac has. And if we are united to Christ, which is depicted in baptism, as we'll see in a moment... These priceless treasures are ours also. And that is why I said at the very beginning that this passage is so fitting on a Sunday in which we will do baptism. Because in baptism, we get the bare essentials of what it means to be a Christian. We see the identifying of a person with Christ. And what I'm saying to you now is that in this passage where we really see this covenant shift from Abraham to Isaac, we are getting the very same thing. We're getting the essence of what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a Christian. Three 
priceless treasures are yours if you are a Christian. And we constantly need to be reminded of these. God's revelation, His presence, and His promises. So how do we know these relate to us? Well, we are offspring of Abraham, just like Isaac. Galatians 3.29, which I've read before. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are Christ, which is depicted in baptism, if you've been united with Christ, you belong to Christ. And what Paul is saying here in Galatians is that if that is true for you, you are like Isaac in that you are a descendant, an offspring of Abraham. What you are reading here applies to you. John 15 14 to 15, Jesus says to his disciples, and and that transfers to all of us who belong to Christ. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I have called you friends. So we know that we are offspring of Abraham by faith, and we know that we are friends of God, just like Abraham So what we see given to Isaac here has also been given to us. So let's look at each of these. God's revelation, his presence, and his promises. First, God's revelation. At various points in the life of Abraham, we saw that the Lord appeared to him. This is called a theophany, an appearance of God. That's what that word means, an appearance of God, that God comes and makes himself known. Now, we read that and we think, okay, yeah, God came, he appeared. We don't know exactly what that was like, what form God took, how God manifested himself to Abraham. But we need to, we need to understand the gravity of this. The God who is incomprehensible, who is infinite, eternal, who made the stars, who made angelic beings, one of whom killed thousands upon thousands of the Assyrian army. Outside of the gates of Jerusalem. He made all of them. This is the infinite, eternal God who makes himself known in such a way that we can read in the Bible that he appeared to men. God is making himself known here as well to Isaac. And that is exactly what we see in verse 2. He is imparting his word. He is revealing himself, making himself known. What about us? Well, it's amazing when you get to the New Testament, you get language like this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, by the way, we have been living in the last days since Christ's coming. The last days began when Christ came. We are in the last days. And this is what he, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. In previous ages, God spoke through prophets. God has spoken to us now by his son. And then we get this intimate language of appearance, of presence in 1 John 1, 1, where it says this, that they heard and saw and touched him. The word of life eternal. They, they heard his voice. They looked upon him. They handled him. They touched him. And now we have the revelation of Christ's appearing in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit. Every time we come to the Bible, the Holy Spirit illuminates the text for us. Make no mistake about it. As a Christian, you come to the Bible. You don't just come to uh, a book with words that you have to make sense of. You come to something in which you are enabled, in which you are empowered by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to make sense of the text. That's not to say that someone who's not a Christian can't see clearly what God says in his word. We can. But in order to understand the depth of it and the application of it to our lives, we need the Holy Spirit. So maybe you ask, I've been reading the Bible for a long time. There's just nothing there. Maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit. Consider that. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us and makes the scriptures alive to us in a real palpable way we have this appearing in christ and his glory we behold in his word second we see god's presence we know from a number of places in the story of abraham that he enjoyed god's presence 
God was with him. One of my favorite verses in the entire Abraham narrative is chapter 15, verse 1, where God says to him, I am your shield. It's a beautiful language. We all experience various kinds of troubles and how often we need to be reminded that God is our shield. We get this other language in the Bible. God is our, a rock. He's our fortress. He's our stronghold. You get the imagery of, of an army chasing you down and you're about to die and you run into the fortress and this big massive door slams down. Nothing can get to you. He is our fortress. He is our rock and he is our shield because he is with us. And that is exactly what he said to Abraham. I am your shield. And that's what we have here with Isaac in verse 3. Even more explicit. He says, I will be with you. God will not only appear to him and speak to him, but he will also abide with him. God will dwell with him. Watch over him. God will give Isaac his presence. You know, that reminds us of something else, too. That is, that is the Christian life, and that's heaven. Heaven is being with God. So this is another way, as we, as we come together this morning and think about the Christian life, this is another way to think about whether or not you are a Christian. Does that appeal to you at all? Does being a Christian equal, I don't have to go to hell? Does being a Christian equal, I'll get to go and be happy and be with loved ones? Of course we want to be with loved ones who have died here on earth. Of course we want eternal bliss and sunshine and beautiful flowers and beautiful birds and whatever it is you think of when you think of heaven. But heaven is God. Heaven is the glory of God shining in all of its splendor with you. And so if that doesn't appeal to you, if that's just a, oh, uh, okay, yeah, that too. That's a sign that maybe you're not a Christian. Being with God is the end. It's the end in and of itself. There is no other end to this life and to the life to come than to be with God. And we saw that with Abraham. And now we see this also with Isaac. Matthew 28, 20 tells us that Jesus will always be with us. He told his disciples, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, those guys died. To the end of the age means that he is as present with us as his church. He is as present with those of us who follow him today as he was with his disciples. Jesus is with us and he will be. Until the end. 1 Corinthians 6.19. We learn that Jesus is not just with us in this general way. He's with us as the church. The universal church. The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. No, no, no. He's with you every moment of every day. In you. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. Mark of a Christian is that the living God dwells inside of you. What a mystery that the Spirit of God actually lives in us. Dwells with us. Dwells in us. We see here God's presence. And then third, we see God's promises in this narrative about Isaac. One of the main points that I made when we started looking at Abraham back in chapter 12, was that God came to him with a massive heap of promises, huge amount of promises. And these were concerning offspring, land, and blessings. And these came to a climax, we saw, in chapter 22, where God swore by himself. And that's what's being referred to here in verse 3, is that God made an oath. He swore by himself. And here we see those promises echoed for his son, Isaac. And it's not just the quantity of the promises. It's not just that God went through and said, I promise to do this. I will do this. I will do that. I will do that. And you get a long list of promises. It's not just that. It's the grandeur of these promises. Look at the language here. All these lands, offspring as the stars of heaven. In your offspring, 
all the nations of the earth. (laughs) These are just traveling nomads living in tents in this little insignificant strip of land called Canaan. And God, the God of the universe, appears to them and says, in your offspring, everyone in the world will be blessed. Your family, these promises are of cosmic, universal significance. These are the promises that God makes to Abraham. And these are the promises that he makes to his son, Isaac. What about us? Second Peter 1, 4 He speaks of, Peter speaks of God having granted to us his precious and very great promises. We are seeing in this transition from Abraham to Isaac, we are seeing all of the the blessings of friendship with God lived out in Isaac that we can appropriate for ourselves. As God revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac, he reveals himself to us. As God, is with, as God was with Isaac and Abraham, he is with us. And as God made incredible, great, lasting promises to those patriarchs, he has made these promises to us. These are priceless treasures. Are these treasures to you? They mean anything to you? Does this excite you? Is this something that you live for? That's another way to understand whether or not you're truly born again. Whether or not you're truly regenerated. You have a new heart. You are a Christian. If you are a Christian, these things will indeed be treasures to you. And that will be expressed in how you live. People talk about reading your Bible. As though it's some sort of legal demand. Some sort of... uh, stipulation, you better read your Bible. Make sure you read your Bible. For the person who sees these things as treasures, the Bible will always be the most precious thing. Why? Because God appears in his word. We behold his glory in his word. It's in his word that we experience his presence as he applies his word to our hearts. And it's in his word that we have his promises. Bible reading is just something that goes along with the Christian life. It's natural to the Christian life. So once again, if the Bible for you is just something collecting dust and not very significant, ask yourself this. How precious to me are these treasures that are found in the Bible? So, like father, like son in his friendship. But now we come to the second way we see this, and that is in his faith. We see this in his faith. We've looked at the covenant relationship that passes on from Abraham to Isaac. But now let's look at the details of this particular story. What is going on here in chapter 26? It's not just a a transfer of covenant from Abraham to Isaac, but there's also, this is a story. This is a narrative. So let's look at some of the details. There's a famine in the land, and Isaac is moving south through the land of Canaan. The land of promise. Verse 1 says that he went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. This land is at the southern border of Canaan, and it is ruled by this person, Abimelech. And this is someone we've encountered before, so maybe you're tempted to go, hold on a second. Abimelech was the same guy in the life of Abraham that we talked about back in those chapters before. And so that's raises some questions. Is this the same person? Well, probably not the same person. Quite a bit of time has passed. So how are we to understand who this is? Well, one way to understand that is that Abimelech, the word Abimelech is is more like a title. So rather than being a personal name, like Amenhotep, it's more like a title, like Pharaoh. So Abimelech is a Philistine royal title, much like Pharaoh is an Egyptian royal title title or office. So we see here that he goes to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And it appears that Isaac is on his way to Egypt to escape the famine. And it is at this point that God appears to him. So look at verses two to three. Do not go down to Egypt. So that tells us Isaac's on his way. He's at least thinking, I think I'm going to go, I think I'm going to head down to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land. So just as God told Abraham to leave his family and homeland to go to the promised land, here he tells Isaac 
to stay in the promised land despite the famine. Will Isaac keep going to the refuge of Egypt and the river Nile where there's not a famine? There's a famine in this land. Isaac can keep going down to Egypt and he can escape this famine. Will he do that? Will he live by sight according to his own assessment of the situation? Or will he trust and obey the voice of the Lord? That's the question that we're left with here at this point. Well, let's look. Verses 5 to 6. What happens? Well, we read, because Abraham obeyed, as we continue on from the verse 4, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. As we studied the life of Abraham, we saw that two things were being constantly tied together throughout those chapters. One, God's faithfulness. And two, Abraham's faith. So all throughout the Abrahamic narratives, God's faithfulness is towering above the story and Abraham's faith. And these things are being woven together throughout that entire narrative. And this faith of Abraham was not just faith in theory, but it was faith in practice. It was a living and active faith. This faith was a seed that produced the plant of obedience. We talked about that. Uh, This past week in our Bible study of James, and let me just encourage you, uh, men in the church, that if you're you're trying to, you know, I know guys are busy, have a lot going on, but if you're trying to find ways to plug in and to be discipled and get to know men in the church and get in the Word, it's a wonderful opportunity to come along to our men's Bible studies. We have them on the second and fourth Tuesday of the month. This month, the next month, it'll it'll finish at the end of June, but we're looking at at the book of James And in James, that's exactly what we get. We get the picture of a faith that produces obedience. And nowhere was that faith of Abraham demonstrated better than at Mount Moriah, where he was willing to sacrifice his son to the Lord. And that's what James deals with in chapter 2. So let me read James' assessment of Abraham's faith. James 2, verses 21 to 22, he says this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Hold on a second. Abraham was justified by faith. We know that from chapter 15 of Genesis. Paul makes a lot of that in Romans and Galatians. What's going on here? Well, James says, was he not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. In other words, what James is saying is that Abraham's act of obedience justified or completed or vindicated the reality of his faith. Abraham's faith was not just this internal subjective thing that he had rolling around in his mind, but it was a a faith that was expressed in his obedient actions. And here the Lord describes Abraham's obedience In terms of keeping his charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. This is the language associated with the law. The law of Israel, we get it in Deuteronomy 11.1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. What is the relationship between the Christian and the law? That's a big question and Uh, It's something that theologians debate and discuss, and maybe you've thought about it uh, several times. Maybe you've read some books on that. What is the relationship between the Christian and the law? We know that we are not under the law. We've been freed from the law through Christ. But James talks about the law of liberty or the royal law, the law as fulfilled in Christ, which has been written on the heart of a Christian. So a Christian does live out the law. We see that here with Abraham before the law even came. He kept God's charge, his commandments, his statutes, and his laws. That means that from the heart, he lived out God's law, even though the law had not yet been given. And that is the same for us who are Abraham's offspring by faith. We live out the law from the heart by the circumcision of the Holy Spirit. That is exactly what we see here with Isaac in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. 
And you might be asking, where do we see Isaac's faith? I mean, we see Abraham's faith because of all this language, but where do we see Isaac's faith? I'm saying like father, like son in his friendship, like father, like son in his faith. Where do we see Isaac's faith in this passage? So Isaac settled in Gerar. That's it. No flowery, drawn out explanation of his faith. Just a simple statement that he did what God said. Get that. Get that. That he did what God said. Maybe some of us are thinking that the Christian life, you get discouraged because there's just no, no pizzazz to the Christian life. You know, maybe you read biographies of people. My wife Jennifer is reading a biography now of Reformation women. And she has all these little snapshots of, of women during the time of the Reformation. And maybe sometimes as we read these biographies or we hear these stories, maybe we get a little discouraged in the Christian life because we, we think, oh, you know, I, I want to I just scale the walls, live out this grand faith. What is faith? It is lived out in simply doing what God says. That's it. The Christian life is really quite simple. I had a professor one time, and I think I've mentioned this, who said in a class, he said, the Christian life is really just so ordinary. It is so ordinary. It is Christ who will come back and who will reward in those ordinary things, those ordinary, everyday, unseen acts of love and acts of faith, simply doing what God says. And that's what we see here. He did exactly what God said. He settled in Gerar. He turned his face away from Egypt and turned towards this land. And so let me ask you this morning, what do you right now, right now need to turn your face away from and towards? Right now in your life, God is saying to you, believe Live out your faith. What right now, as we talk about this, is the Holy Spirit leading you to turn your face away from? To simply do what God says. This is waking up every day and doing what God says in his word by faith in his promises. You don't need to scale the walls. You don't need to die as a martyr. You don't need to go to some country half the world away. Although it would be wonderful if more of us did that. Wake up every day and do what God says in his word by faith in his promises. That's the Christian life. And then die in hope of the resurrection of the dead. But as we read on in this story, we see very clearly that this faith is imperfect. It's a feeble faith. And so we see like father, like son in his friendship, like father, like son in his faith. But then finally, we see like father, like son in his frailty. Unfortunate little story here. Let's look at verses 7 to 11. Verses 7 to 11, as we finish up this morning, when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Well, here we go again. Another echo. This one not so positive. We get all those glorious grand promises. That's a beautiful echo, one you like to hear. And then you get this echo. So disappointing, so discouraging, or maybe for us, encouraging. As we'll see in a moment. But twice we read how Abraham lied, saying that his wife Sarah was merely his sister. Once dealing with Pharaoh back in chapter 12, and then again with Abimelech in chapter 20. Twice he put his wife 
And the promise is in jeopardy to save his own skin. He was afraid. He wanted to save himself. And this is a a picture of marital love that it's really difficult to understand. I mean, what in the world are these guys doing with their wives? But That's what he does. Twice he acted independently of God out of fear. And that is what we see here with Isaac. Like father... Like son, except this time it's a full lie as opposed to a half lie, right? Because Abraham was, or Abram was, was the half brother of Sarai. So the kind of a half lie, although half lie is still a lie, and not speaking the truth actually, remaining silent when we should speak the truth is also a lie, by the way. But here we have with Isaac just a full blown lie. Rebecca is not in any way, shape, or form his. Sister, Isaac and Rebekah have been living in the land for some time under this lie. And one day, Abimelech, the king, notices something strange. Isaac shows Rebekah some kind of playful affection. And it's unclear what exactly this is, but whatever it is, it makes very clear to him, she is not his sister. Something else, but not his sister. So he doesn't need to inquire. Whatever it is, it makes, the, it makes it clear that she is more to him than that. And he quickly rebukes Isaac for his deceit, for his lying, telling him that his wife could have easily been taken by another man, which, have, which would have brought guilt on the people for that adulterous affair. The story ends here with a decree from the king. Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So what do we make of this? Isaac, what's what's going on here with Isaac? I want you to notice several things, several things about Isaac. First, notice the generational folly. Now, this is really important. Not a single one of us dads is, is perfect. And not a single one of us has a perfect dad or perfect mom. And what we realize is that the sins of one generation have a way of getting passed into the next generation. Some way or another. Generational folly. I think it's a warning to those of us who are dads. Asking the question, what are we doing now? What are we involved in now? What kinds of behaviors are we perpetuating now that we're taking lightly? We're ta- what kinds of behaviors, even hidden behaviors, that you think, well, my son doesn't see that, my children don't see that, but there's all the ways that that sin in secret is being played out in public in your life in ways that your son does see. And it's just a matter of time before he does see it. So the question is this, what kinds of folly are we setting up for our sons, dads? What kinds of folly are we setting up for our children, moms and dads, and even for our daughters, Dads, what kinds of men are our daughters seeing us live out? The kind of men they will gravitate towards. Folly in the future because of folly in the present. We also see here faith mixed with fear. We know that Isaac trusts the Lord because he does what God tells him to do. He obeys God, and we know that from later. Isaac is a man of faith, like his father Abraham. But what do we see here? We see a faith that is fearful. It's, it's yes, okay, God, you're going to be with me, but then we act like God is not with us. I think this speaks to the anxious person. You say you believe in God, but you're afraid. Afraid of so many things. God is with you. Remember that. Faith need not be fearful, not even of death. That faith in Christ has has taken away the sting even of death. If Christians by nature are those who are not afraid of death, then what else do we have to be afraid of? Death itself has been conquered on our behalf by Christ. But we see here, This is faith mixed with fear. He's afraid to die. They'll kill me. A false witness of who God is. That's another thing we see. 
Here is this man of faith. He has housed in his mind and in his heart the very life of God by faith. He has God with him and he's going out into the nations and he's acting as though there is no God who is with him. He's acting like a functional atheist. And how often our unbelieving friends who are not Christians, how often they see atheists among the people of God who act like atheists. We trust God in our hearts. We do. But we look more like atheists sometimes in how we live. This is a false witness of who God is. It's a failure to love neighbor. He has brought this on this king. And, and, and the way we see here, what we see here, this king seems to be, uh, he has a righteous disposition in this way. He's handling this in, in the right kind of way. Abraham has done an injustice, or Isaac here has done an injustice to this king. And I want to submit one last thing to you. It is a failure to hate sin wherever it may be found. Now listen to this. Jesus says that we should mourn and weep. And when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about how that's a mourning and a weeping over sin everywhere. We mourn and we weep over our own sin. But we as Christians, as God's people, who want the glory of God to fill the earth, that's the goal, that's worship, that's missions, that the glory of God would fill the earth. We should weep and mourn wherever we see sin. And what we see here is Isaac is quite happy to bring sin and evil upon these people. And that's a failure to understand that all sin is sin against God. All sin detracts from the glory of God displayed in the earth. That should be Isaac's focus. But it's not. Preserving his own life, that's what he is about. And it's here that we see so clearly as we close this morning that at the very center of the Christian life, is this wonderful word, grace. The very center of the Christian life is God's grace. God's grace in giving us faith to begin with. Why does Isaac have faith? Because of God's grace. Why did Abraham have faith? Because of God's grace. God's grace in showing us patience in our fumbling and foolishness. God's grace in protecting us from ourselves. Here we see that God is not mentioned specifically as protecting Rebecca, but we know who's doing that. Just like Esther, right? God is not mentioned as specifically working all those things out, but we know who's doing that. It's God. The hand of God is present here in this story. God is protecting Isaac from himself. How often does God protect us from ourselves? Each of us, as a Christian, could sit here into the afternoon. Maybe we should try that sometime. And just talk about all the ways that God has protected us from ourselves. All the ways that God has been gracious and patient in the midst of such folly. Such feeble faith. That is what we see. This glorious grace of God. There is only one who had perfect faith. You know, when you set out at the beginning... And you're looking for the he. In Genesis 3, you're looking for the he who will crush the head of the serpent. You think when you get to Seth, it might be him. No. Enoch, it might be. No. Noah, no. Abraham, no. Isaac, no. Not a single one of these men believed perfectly. Not a single one of these men obeyed perfectly. These men were sinners. Like us, there's only one, one man who believed perfectly, who loved perfectly, who hoped perfectly. And it is the true seed of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one we celebrate when we're baptized. He's the one who is celebrated in this service. He's the one who's celebrated in a moment out there when, when these young ladies will be brought down into the water and brought up. It is Christ that shines forth. He is the seed. He is the faithful one. He was perfect. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He suffered for sins. This righteous one who did not deserve any judgment. He believed in our place, and then he died for our unbelief. 
And he fills us now with his spirit, conforms us to his likeness. And one day, praise God, it's, it's coming. One day he will transform us entirely into his glorious perfection. We will be like this perfect Christ one day. Isn't that amazing to think sin will be gone? There'll be no more sinful thoughts. There'll be no more sinful words. There will only be perfect, perfect love. All the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In heaven, we will love God perfectly, and we will love the community of the saints perfectly. And this is what baptism pictures as well. As they come up out of the water, we are reminded that one day the Son of God will speak. And those who have died in him will come up out of the ground. They will be raised and live forever in the presence of God. So today, as we consider Isaac's friendship, his faith, and his frailty, we realize we're looking in a mirror. These 11 verses... This is the experience of every single one of us who is a Christian. And this has been the experience of Sarah and of Eva. This has been their experience. And in a moment, we'll get to see that visualized for us through the ordinance of baptism. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gospel. It is the gospel of God. It is the gospel concerning your son who is descended from David according to the flesh. He was raised from the dead. And Father, we look to him. All we have is Christ. We thank you that he is perfectly obedient. He was the perfect man. He loved you so perfectly, Father. He followed your word so perfectly. He loved and showed compassion so perfectly, this Jesus Christ. He is our only hope in life and death. And we pray that we would trust him more, that we would not be afraid because Christ is risen and he has passed through the heavens. He will come back for us. No catastrophe, no crisis, not even the great trial of death can separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we praise you for this glorious gospel. We praise you that we get to see it visualized in the lives of these two ladies here in a moment. Thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege to be a part of this. We ask that you be glorified in the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name, amen.